Bordy. Hello, I'm Lisa Francesca Nand and welcome to the Big Travel Podcast. Actor Warwick Davis's first trip abroad was to California at the age of 11 to star in Star Wars, a big jump from his day-to-day childhood in Surrey. On this episode, we talk Carrie Fisher feeding him cookies in the Redwood Forest, sweltering in a rubber head mask in the deserts of Tunisia, causing mayhem in India on an idiot abroad with, with Carl Pilkington, entering a panda enclosure dressed as a baby panda in China, family holidays in Dubai, the poignant trip to Auschwitz he made for his brilliant documentary, The Seven Dwarfs of Auschwitz, the majestic pencil museum in Cumbria, and so much more. Warwick Davis is on the Big Travel Podcast. Well, hello. Thank you very much for joining us on the Big Travel Podcast. My pleasure. Nice to be here. You've been very lucky. Uh, well, lucky, you know, people make their own luck, uh, I think. But in terms of travel, you've travelled an awful lot in your career so far and, and family life as well. For mm. work, for Star Wars, for Ricky Gervais uh, on his whims. Um, we'll get on to that in a minute. But I know you're a, a, a keen traveller with the family, travelling yes. in, in the UK and your camper van and also uh, now with a connection with Visit Dubai as well. Um, tell us first about that. Well, um, a few years ago, we went to Dubai as a family and uh, I understood what a great destination it is for a family. You know, you think of it as this kind of up and coming high tech place, very modern. But I really didn't think of it as a holiday destination for the family prior to going there myself. And once I was there, I realized how great the climate is, not too hot, and it offers something for everyone, young or old. I, uh, I've actually got a big a travel confession to make. Mm. You know what's coming, don't you? I've never actually been. And I feel like desperate to go because now I'm a mum and uh, I've got two children and I feel it's the perfect holiday destination for, I've earmarked it for my February half term. And I keep meaning to do it every year with the kids and then some, something keeps on going wrong. But it's that the right distance and time and lack of jet lag and sunshine, that sort of blazing sun is exactly mm. what you want in the winter, isn't it? You've got to check it out. I mean, uh, for the kids, I mean, there's a wonderful water park on the Palm, which, uh, you know, I'm not a big fan of water parks usually, but this one, you know, as a parent, you can chill out while the kids are going around on this sort of uh, river, as it were. And every time you get to um, kind of an incline, you'll put on this conveyor belt on the rubber ring that you're sitting in. And you don't have to walk up any steps and you can just then flow down with gravity down the rapids and round again. The kids absolutely love it. My kids didn't want to get off. It sounds amazing. And the wife were in the bar and they were still going around. There's a bar, fantastic, even better. Um, I, I think when you become a parent, you find yourself doing all sorts of holidays you didn't think you'd do. I remember thinking, oh, I'll have a tiny baby and sling on a backpack and trek off around Nepal. And, you know, absolutely no, I want to go somewhere. I want a nice, clean hotel and all the mod cons and everything like that. Absolutely, I agree with that, totally, yeah. I mean, I like all my kind of modern conveniences when I'm on holiday. I've never been a backpacker. Been in a backpack, but never backpacked myself. <laughs> I've never been in a backpack, but or a backpacker. I've never done all, all of those things. But actually, I quite fancy being uh, carried around in a backpack. That sounds it's quite, quite useful. Nice. Yeah. I know that you were born in in Epsom, which weirdly is where my two children were born, only because they had to go to the hospital down there. It's very wow, um, wonderful. Uh, yeah, that's where I was born. Ah, well. If you'd have yeah. listened to my episode 100, which obviously you have, uh, haven't possibly, um, I interviewed 100. the head of gynecology there because he was my miscarriage expert. He's a wonderful, it's a wonderful episode because he was tortured by um, by the, uh, in, in Sudan and then became the world's miscarriage expert. Anyway, it's a massive diversion. Gosh. But yes, 
our kids were born. I'm in trying to take this in at the minute. What you just said, that's what an amazing story. Oh, well, I'll send you the episode if you're interested, because I know episode you've probably... Episode 100, was it? Episode 100 of the Big Travel Podcast. I know you've you've had sort of some experience with that sort of thing yourself. And um, he's now the world's miscarriage, uh, top miscarriage expert. And he was tortured as a young doctor, uh, as a junior doctor in, in Sudan and imprisoned there. So it's it will it will make you cry. It's like a, you know, sort of tingling sort of episode. Um, but I realise mm. it is a massive digression. Um, but there you were, born in, in Epsom and not travelling much, as many of us weren't, you know, back when we were kids, not travelling much in the way of uh, abroad. Because Nothing was, exotic, no, just at home in the caravan with my parents, you know, going to uh, the Lake District, Devon, Cornwall and Wales. All beautiful places, but people didn't really, you know, certainly in my circle uh, back then, go abroad. But the first time you went abroad was a major deal, wasn't it? Yeah, it was when I was working on Star Wars. I mean, that took me, my first trip on a plane, flew all the way to uh, Northern California. And uh, it was back in the day when air travel really wasn't as popular as it is now. So I remember me and my sister played hide and seek on the plane because it was that empty. I mean, it was more or less just us on the 747 flying over to um, San Francisco. I, I often ask people, when is that moment where you, you know, you realise that, you know, something major is happening in your career, but you're what you were 12 years old and this is a, a huge job. And also, as I imagine, as a 12 year old, a fan already of Star Wars. Well, I was, yeah. Yeah, I watched Star Wars when I was seven and it had a huge impact on me. But I didn't know at that point I was going to get the chance to one day be in it. And how was that when you flew over? Do you remember like having that, oh, my God, I've made it sort of moment, or did you just take it in your stride? I'm not really. I was 11, so I was just enjoying the experience of meeting my heroes in the shape of Harrison Ford, Mark Hamill and Carrie Fisher. Did you realise that it was, it was quite an unusual thing to do for you know an 11-year-old? Oh, it was, yeah. I mean, I was getting out of school, getting paid a bit of extra pocket money. Uh, so, yes, it was a unique experience. And also going on to film the other Star Wars movies again. Do you know what? This is really awful because I suddenly feel like I'm really uncultured. But I'm I don't know that much about them. I've seen them, but I'm not that. You know, like I've seen them when I was a kid or whatever. But I'm not that sort of obsessive, which a lot of people are. You know, incredibly mm. obsessive about the Star Wars films. Um, but I know from a travel point of view, I mean, they're, they're filmed in all sorts of wonderful locations. Yeah, you can still visit some of the sets around the world. Uh, namely in uh, Tunisia. I think some of the sets still stand there and people go on these homage trips to kind of visit Tatooine, which was Tunisia. And also you can go to the Redwood Forest in Northern California. Well, I did work in Tunisia on episode one because uh, that's where Tatooine is. Uh, so I got to work in that location, which was uh, absolutely stunning, going out into the desert, working in the heat of like 50 degrees in a rubber head. It's quite an experience. I can imagine. Describe uh, describe a, a typical scene there. I mean, what does it look like? Uh, well, it was for the pod race sequence in episode one. So basically just kind of uh, all I do is remember getting very, very hot. I mean, extremely hot. Uh, but the heat out there, fortunately, is very dry. So, you know, the sweater you get, it soon dries up. And uh, you've got to drink plenty of water. And to film out in a desert like that, uh, to take advantage of the uh, the coolness, you know, we'd go out very early. We'd start at 4 a.m. filming 
And then by the lunchtime, the heat was almost unbearable. So we finished quite early and go back to the hotel. Was that the one where Carrie Fisher was feeding you uh, cookies? and? Uh, and... That was uh, Return of the Jedi, my first ever film. And that was in the much cooler, more temperate Redwood Forests of Northern California. That must have been amazing. I mean, the Redwoods are fantastic, but there you are, you know, a boy from from Surrey. How, how was it being fed cookies by Carrie Fisher? I was lovely. She felt sorry for me being in a hot costume. So I was standing by with milk and cookies to revive me. She sounds, uh, by all accounts, like an, uh, she she was an incredible woman. Yeah, lovely lady, yeah. That is a, a, such a dream come true for so many people. Oh, absolutely. Yes, it really was. Yeah, especially at 11, being a fan of the films. And so after that, so how did how did things progress for you in terms of um, in terms of career after that, actually, really? Uh, next was Labyrinth, much closer to home, filmed at Elstree Studios in London, where they used to do Big Brother. Um, and so, yeah, nothing exotic there. Boreham Wood. I, what was exotic was filming with one David Bowie, I guess. Oh, yeah, that was at Elstree. But yeah, David made it more exotic and more exciting. Yeah, well, uh, he's a Bromley boy, so I don't know how it was Brixton and then uh, Bromley, wasn't he? So uh, yeah, pretty yeah. exotic. But how how was that? Oh, it was an amazing experience. Yeah, um, just being a goblin. I mean, it was my second film, so I didn't really, I wasn't forging a career, but I kind of was unknowingly at that point. And how was how was David Bowie? He's good. I mean, there's a huge presence when he walks onto set. I mean, in the same way as when. Uh, Harrison Ford walks into the room. You kind of know Harrison Ford just walked into the room. So heads turn and you kind of just feel this star presence that's with you. Oh, I, I always wonder where where that uh, the sort of chicken and egg thing, you know, does that, what comes first? There's someone that walks into the room and commands that presence and attention and then they, you know, they become, the, they get the role and they become the, this huge star or or does it, you know, is it the other way around? I think it's with success comes the confidence uh, that you then exude when you go anywhere, which then is that kind of star quality and that presence that these actors have. You must get recognised pretty much everywhere. Yeah, I wouldn't say I kind of have that same um, quality as Harrison Ford or, or David Bowie for that much, that well, example. I, don't, I, don't I mean, know. I get recognised really for... Well, I get recognised for things like Tenable, depending on who you are, Harry Potter, Leprechaun. I mean, there's an, a myriad of things that people recognise me from. And I'm always very flattered when they do recognise me and appreciate what I've done. Is it ever uncomfortable? Uh, I mean, it can get challenging when... Um, you know, you're trying to get on with your day and you're crowded around with people wanting selfies. You know, I've always got to have my hairbrush when I go out because yeah. uh, you always got to look good nowadays because it'll end up somewhere on social media. Yeah, that's true. And somebody's always, already, always ready to fill you. So you can't just have a grumpy day, can you? And you're like, Not really, hey, no. I really don't want to take a picture right now. I'm in my pyjamas on my way to Asda. <sighs> but one of the things I liked about Dubai we were talking about earlier was that in that country there's a law that you can't take a picture of someone without their permission. Oh, so for really? me, that's really cool because people are then not really allowed just to come and take pictures of you. I mean, I don't mind a selfie with people. It's when people are trying to take pictures and you're having kind of a family moment and you're in your own sort of private space. That's very uh, intrusive.
And do you find that also people take photos of you because you look different? I mean, I know when I've traveled with a very blonde friend of mm. mine to India and, you know, people sort of crowd around. And, and one time we were in a, in a very busy street in um, Mumbai, I think it was, when there were about sort of 30 men just sort of in a big crowd, just sort of standing and looking mm. at us. And actually it felt very, I mean, nobody was threatening, but the very fact that you're you're creating so much tension just mm. feels a little bit, you know, a little bit, it makes you feel a little bit vulnerable, I guess. Yeah, I mean, most of the time for me, here it's because i'm recognized as an entertainer but yeah for my family and kids sometimes it's not so it's just because they are standing out because they're different but yes in india as i've traveled as well like you i noticed if you're from the west there's a lot of interest in you as an individual so you get pictures you get crowds and when i traveled there with carl pilkington for the series we did together it was um yeah they're looking at him because he's got no hair and he's miserable and for me, it's because I'm from the West and I'm a little person. Right. Yeah. I, I guess it also cultural differences when you travel abroad. Mm. You know, here we sort of try not to sort of, um, you know, pay pay people attention, obviously, you know, too obviously. Um, but in, in other countries, they uh, they just have to, it's different cultural. Indeed. Yeah. You have to understand this when you do travel, that everywhere has these different kind of cultural ways. And you've got to accept that when you travel. You can't go somewhere and make it the UK. You have to go with the flow and get in with the culture. You know, don't fight it, otherwise you'll have a miserable time. And, and it's uh, it's interesting when you don't know it as well. There's, I remember when I w went to uh, Thailand for the first time and there's all sorts of, I was there for a few months and there's all sorts of cultural norms that you don't know, such as don't touch people's heads and don't show the soles of your feet and, you know, what to eat with. And sometimes you just don't know. Don't eat with your feet. I think that's another <laughs> one. <laughs> Don't eat with, with your feet while you're touching someone else's head. I you need to do that. episode 101. That is all the things you should do and shouldn't do in different countries. So when someone's trying to go to Thailand or whatever, you tell them what, what the culture tells you when you're there. Such a good idea. I think I might. Thank you very much. Yeah, no, I'll, I'll be writing that one down. And in fact, talking of uh, Carl Pilkington, who is a massively grumpy uh, traveller, um, how did the how did the uh, the series with him come about? Uh, well, it was one we were working on Life's Too Short with Ricky Gervais. Uh, I remember one lunchtime, um, Sam and I had been watching clips from Idiot Abroad, and uh, she said to Ricky, "You know, we've been watching some of the travels with Carl. You should send Warwick along with him because she knows I don't particularly like kind of eating weird foods and stuff and travelling on my own." She said, um, "Send Warwick off with Carl. It'll be fun." And anyway, he laughed and then uh, took her up on the idea and took me away. She wanted a bit of peace, I think. So sent me off with Carl for about, we were away for about two or three months. I, I can imagine, because you didn't really know each other before, did you? And when you're thrown together, mm. I think this happens certainly when I go on press trips with other journalists and it all ends up in a, in, you know, quite an unusual situation where you get to know each other very, very quickly. And I imagine it also happens on tour groups. If you think of those old fashioned mm. uh, coach trips, well, coach trip, indeed, the, tele the television programme, but those coach trips that people used to go on more, you know, in my parents and grandparents um, generation, you get thrown together with a group of strangers that you've got to navigate yourself, you know, in, into yeah. uh, through difficult and unusual situations when you're out of your comfort zone. And it sounds like your relationship with Carl sort of developed over time in that sense. Well, I kind of knew Carl from the Ricky Gervais podcast, having listened to those. I got a sense of who he was, what kind of annoyed him, what kind of, what he enjoyed. And then when we were away together on the uh, on the series, I was able to kind of push those buttons because I knew what would annoy him and what he didn't like. 
So a little bit of knowledge went a long way there. Yeah, did you enjoy that, having a little dig at him? <laughs> oh, it was fun, yeah, because nothing's better than seeing Carl getting annoyed or getting frustrated with something. Uh, what was the most uh, awkward moment when you were away? Well, I think for Carl it was the moment when he decided he wanted to be James Bond and kind of go on this sort of water kind of jetpack thing where you, you're kind of in, in the water and you have this backpack on that fires a jet of water out the bottom and you then kind of hover. And he thought he was going to be the next James Bond in this thing. But it transpired once he was strapped to this thing, he almost then drowned. So he was not very happy about that and he couldn't get it to lift off. Yeah, I imagine the jetpack sort of thing is uh, is a lot harder to navigate in uh, yeah. in, in real life. Um, I saw you talking about the moment when you were in Varanasi and um, and you know just how unusual it is. And again, back to India, you know, it's an incredible. In, in in many ways, it's a feast on the senses. You know, the sights and sounds and smells mm -hmm. and noise and everything. Um, but uh, in somewhere like Varanasi, which I haven't actually been to personally, but I know a lot of people who have. Um, it, it sounds like a very, very weird and wonderful uh, situation. Was Varanasi where the Ganges run through there? Yes, that's where the Ganges yeah. run through there with the and burning bodies. That's where bodies. they do the funeral pyres. Yeah, exactly. I mean, Tell that us a was something like that. I'd never seen or never thought I'd ever see. So we went on a boat on the Ganges, which that area is one of the most polluted stretches of river in the world. If you fall into that, then you'd uh, you're probably going to not be very well for a while. Um, so, uh, yeah, as we're floating down the river there and you're watching these bonfires and then you suddenly dawns on you, these are actually people being cremated right there. And, uh, I remember one particular thing, Carl wanted to see the sunrise over the Ganges. So we get on this boat and then as we're floating, you know, serenely down the river, watching the sunrise, ash is then falling on Carl. And I'm thinking about that poor person who that used to be. They've traveled thousands of miles across India to come here and be cremated. And now they've landed on Carl. They didn't even make it into the Ganges. Yeah. And uh, I imagine Carl wouldn't be very happy with uh, with the, the ashes of some no. uh, random strangers <laughs> uh, trickling on him. Carl was very much in danger by the time when he was on the uh, the jetpack. But any other sort of precarious situations that you're away on that trip? A few. Um... One of them, again, was in India. We, we decided to camp on the uh, banks of the Ganges River and, uh, and and try and watch the sunrise from there initially. And then we were joined by a group of um, of people. I, don't, I can't remember what their names were or the name of the group, but they don't sleep. Basically, it's kind of part of their belief system or whatever. They don't sleep. And it, in turn, it makes them a little bit crazy. So they came along and kind of gatecrashed our camp and... Uh, started kind of beating the fire. I mean, it was it was madness. So we had to quickly evacuate that area. What is that about? I mean, I know people that um, fruitarians say that will only think, eat things that drop from the tree, but they don't sleep at all. I mean, it sounds like a lot of kids, though. They only eat Haribo and don't sleep. Yeah, exactly. I think that's my children. Yeah, but uh, <laughs> what, what's, what's this? What were they I like? don't know what it is. I don't know what their belief system is, why they do that. It's probably get to a higher plane of some sort I'm not sure so, what that is though but uh yeah it certainly scared us and the film crew and where else did you go it. along that uh, um, where do we go we went to china um and we were also in danger as pandas we want to get up close to pandas so we donned panda suits myself and carl i was a little baby panda he was like the mummy panda and went into a panda enclosure and the panda was way up the tree looking down on us sort of frowning 
And then as the panda started to come down, they said, quick, out, out. And I was thinking, well, I thought we were supposed to get up close and personal with a panda. I thought that was part of the experience. And they said, no, he'll attack you. So we had to quickly scarper out there. That was another time it was a bit precarious. Yeah, I mean, they're not, they're, they're quite, they look cute and fluffy, don't they? Um, but then they're, they're not. I think they're quite vicious killers. <laughs> yeah, they are bears at the end of the day, aren't they? And it also be a bit embarrassing, wouldn't it? You'd definitely get into the, uh, is it the Darwin Awards where you uh, you get into, uh, you know, well, if ridiculous you're too close ways to an for animal, people to die. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that would have been a ridiculous way to go, wouldn't it? Mauled by a panda, oh, yeah, dressed look- as a panda. It would be a little bit embarrassing. Do you enjoy those sort of um, the, the TV series? I know you did uh, Weekend Escapes as well, like talking about multi-generational uh, mm. trips, Weekend Escapes for ITV with your family. It was just looked like such a wonderful thing to do. It was lovely. I mean, we see a lot of those travel kind of shows now with celebrities, etc. Mm. But me and the family were there first. We started that years ago and uh, enjoyed it immensely. And people still talk about it, as you are to this day having enjoyed the series. I mean, it's a very truthful thing. Everything we did on it was kind of as it happened. There was no kind of staging of anything. It was just us as a family enjoying ourselves and hopefully allowing the audience to get to know us and the wonderful places you can go away in Britain. Do you think that we've started to appreciate those more since uh, COVID and since we were literally and metaphorically grounded for a while? Yeah, I think so. I think we all should appreciate, you know, being together and experiencing times together, be it on holiday or not. I mean, that's a, that's the thing about travelling, isn't it? It gives you that sort of, uh, you know, in, intensity and, you know, you sort of leave your devices, you know, particularly with kids and, uh, you should know, do, yeah. get them out of their comfort zone. Um, I saw a quote by you that said that travel has changed a lot um, and it's more accessible uh, to to many people now. And I think actually you were talking about when you first went on the, the plane to uh, to to the States and it was empty, you know, because many, mm. most people weren't weren't doing it, you know, no. uh, unless they they're absolutely loaded. But that sort of quote really stood out to me because it is more accessible um, in, in every way. And um, I wanted to ask you if you if, have you had any physical challenges uh, challenges? Um, with, with travel you know does it present any sort of additional difficulties for you oh it does yeah I mean I um, you know I'm fortunately I'm not in a wheelchair but I can sympathize with people who are because accessibility into areas is not that easy you know if you use a wheelchair and you're on an aircraft it's very very challenging because getting in through through the doors you know some aircraft have those kind of doors that pivot in the middle and you sort of push them in well the spring is so strong I can barely get through it before it's trying to shut and then once I'm inside, I can't reach to lock the door. Uh, everything's way out of reach. The towels to dry your hands are out of reach. Uh, it's, uh, yeah, it can be very challenging in these sort of environments. And have you have you travelled a lot on your own when I imagine it is becomes more travel, uh, challenging when you've got nobody to sort of, you know, pass yeah. you something from a height or something like that? Yeah, no, I always have to ask for help. I mean, passengers and crew are often willing to help out, putting the bags in the overhead storage, that kind of thing. Uh, which I often have to do. Uh, so, uh, so yeah, it's it's about planning ahead and making sure everything is where you're going to need it to be. You know, you've got a lift from the airport, that kind of stuff. I don't leave things to chance like that. I can I can imagine. Uh, actually, something else that I wanted to ask you about about your travels um, is the the ITV uh, perspective series you did uh, yeah, on yeah. what was called the Seven Dwarfs of Outfits. Uh, tell us about that. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, the Seven Dwarfs of Auschwitz are an amazing kind of family 
of little people. And they used to entertain around kind of Eastern Europe and that sort of thing. And they were Jewish. And at the time when Hitler was rounding up all of the Jews and sending them to the camps, uh, they got rounded up, as did all the other Jewish people in that kind of region, and sent to um, Auschwitz. But fortunately for this family, uh, there was this uh, evil doctor, Mengler, who um, experimented on people who were different. And uh, this family caught his eye, and uh, he then took them into his kind of laboratory and started to experiment on them. But as horrendous as that sounds, they were able to escape the uh, gas chambers, which was uh, killing everyone else who had a disability or was different. Were they performing in the camps as well? Um, well, they had their instruments with them. And so they were able to sort of start performing for for the generals, etc., within um, the SS in the camp. And uh, they were the only family who came out intact from the whole uh, from the whole experience. There's some very poignant moments in the uh, the documentary when you you travelled to Auschwitz. Mm. Yeah, I'm very proud of the uh, documentary. Um, but it was so moving just to actually be there in a place that um, presented such horrors. And a lot of people say that, you know, it should be bulldozed. But we should remember because then it'll hopefully we'll remember the lessons it's taught us about human nature and how we should be towards our fellow humans. You know, if we destroy that, then we're going to forget as we go forward. Well, I mean, we still haven't because genocide happens all over the world still. So humankind didn't learn the lessons from that, did they? It's a it's a funny thing in terms of tourism and and um, sites mm. like that. There's so many different trains of thought on as to whether you know should we bulldoze them to the ground? Should we preserve them as museums? Should we be allowed to visit? Uh, going to somewhere like uh, I've been mm. to um, Auschwitz, but also the Killing Fields in Cambodia. Mm. You know, there's so many places like this, and I'm I'm of the minds that you are. I think we should we should go. It's awkward. It's difficult. It's incredibly mm-hmm. sad when you when you travel to these places. But I I think in terms of education and trying to make sure things like that don't happen again mm. i think the places like that and indeed documentaries like yours have a have a, a very very important place thank you i mean it's especially important for the younger generation to go somewhere like that to kind of understand because they'll be the people who inherit the world at the end of the day and hopefully not allow those sort of things to happen yeah absolutely uh, on a, on a happier note where have you yeah. been most at peace and um, when you travel most of peace. Um, the Lake District, probably. That's my happy kind of place. I just got off a cruise um, that went to Iceland, and I was very happy on there. I mean, what's wonderful about going on cruise ships is your you kind of your hotel goes with you, so you check in, and then you your all your experiences come to you. It's an incredible way to travel. And also, you only have to pack once, which is amazing. I'm in the middle of moving house at the moment. So I've just been lifting boxes and packing all weekend. And it reminds me, my my youngest, my eldest son, who's uh, 10, he said to me, it's like the bit when you're you're on the plane and you're getting ready to dis- disembark and you've ca- got to carry all your crap with you, uh, <laughs> but you know it's worth it because you're going to go for, to a beautiful destination. And I was like, hey, nice analogy. You know, travel. That's cool, yeah. We're in the middle of the really bad packing stage at the moment, surrounded by the boxes. But the beautiful thing about a cruise, which is what I always say to people as well, is you can go to all these incredible destinations and pack and unpack once. That's it. You get into the, uh, the stateroom of the cruise and you unpack and that's it. You don't pack up till the end. And that's very um, close in my memory because we only just got back. And I remember packing up the stateroom after two weeks 
Uh, the stuff was everywhere. It took ages. Last day of the cruise, we were packing. Yeah, it's amazing how much you uh, you build up in a short period of time. Yeah. What, uh, what was Iceland like? What did you see when you were there? Oh, it was lovely. We had a bit of stormy weather, though, which you're going to get in that region. Uh, but very dramatic scenery, big seas. So, yeah, it was a very exciting trip. I loved it. I, uh, I go back to Cole Pilkington. It reminds me, I was watching a video, you know, a few things in research before speaking mm. to you. And he was like, he was moaning about, well, moaning as he does. You know, I, I don't know if it's genuinely moaning. Is it genuinely moaning? <laughs> it is very genuine. Is. Yes, okay, absolutely. Fine. No acting required there. He's just moaning. Okay. I love it. Uh, but he was genuinely moaning then about you saying, you know, getting into the sort of travel writer's cliche, which we all do because, you know, these places are beautiful and, and the adjectives are, you know, there's only so many, so many superlatives. But uh, about sort of saying, oh, it was majestic. And, you know, and, and, uh, he hated that like word that. when I said it was majestic. <laughs> It is majestic with you. But majestic is true. It is true. Yeah. Oh, well, I thought it was anyway. There's many uh, travel writing cliche, cliches that I look out for, such as hidden gem, you know. Oh, yeah. That's one of them, <laughs> isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Undiscovered. Undiscovered. In fact, I'm going to ask you, what is your hidden undiscovered gem? Give us one, if you can think of one. Oh, my gosh. You put me on the spot now. Well, for me, one of the, it doesn't sound very exciting when I say it, but the, the pencil museum in Cumbria is in Keswick. <laughs> There's a museum just about pencils. And it's one of my favourite museums in the world. That sounds fantastic. Tell us what's good about the pencil museum. Well, I mean, it was very old and quaint. And then, sadly, a couple of years ago, they got flooded and uh, they had to rebuild. And uh, it's an amazing experience. You get to um, understand the history of pencils, what they're made of, and uh, what they're used for today. I mean, a pencil, it, it lasts longer on paper than an ink pen. So if you're a real autograph collector, you'll actually collect autographs in pencil because they'll be there long after the pens faded. I had no idea. I would have thought it was the other way around. And the first thing they took to space to write with was a pencil. Because, because... ink pens don't work in space unless they're pressurised. Ah, because you need the ink to, you need gravity, don't you? Absolutely. And there's none oh. up there. Oh, the pencil museum i love it if i was to visit actually one of my sort of backstreet museums that i really like is mm. kind of connected to what we were just talking about but it's the history uh the museum of the resistance in amsterdam oh yeah wow. really really wonderful a lot of people sort of miss it out to uh to you know go to all the big galleries as well but there's one museum that i really would have loved to go to and i think it's closed down now and it was in florida and it was the museum of tupperware and i just thought tupperware fantastic yeah oh that sounds exciting <laughs> I tell I'll have you to what, check it out next time I'm there. Because you were talking about the, the social history of the pencil. It's actually really important. The social history of Tupperware is really important because it got women jobs in the 1950s. They started selling it door to door and creating Tupperware parties. So and actually, who doesn't love an airtight box? Oh, my God, exactly. And who doesn't love a bit of Tupperware? I'm saying well, one now. It's in my recording studio and it is airtight. Well, exactly. I hope you got your pencil and a little box of uh, of Tupperware for your sandwiches. I'm going to... Uh, yeah. I'm going to ask you my last question now. My last question is all, always about music. Because okay. um, I, I ask everyone to name, if they would, one song that reminds you of a special moment or special or memorable, it could be good or bad moment, a, a time of place of, of travel. What song would you pick and where were you listening to it? What is the memory? Okay, the song is Sailing. Rod Stewart? No, not that one. That's okay. We Are Sailing. Oh, okay. Sailing <laughs> by, oh, I'm trying to remember his name. It's a wonderful song from the 80s. Oh, he did the say. theme to Arthur as well. Oh, yeah. So that was, uh, I, can, I can sing it. <laughs> Sailing, shall we look it up? 
Yeah, look it up. I was about to try and grab my phone and do it, so okay, it's only okay, cleverer okay. than I actually am. <laughs> no, when when my wife and I play this song, it's like it evokes memories of we got we renewed our wedding vows in Miami, and uh, we had a guy come and play this song. It was um, it's become kind of our song since when we travel. With Christopher Cross. That's him. Yeah, Christopher Cross. Yes. So it's the Moon in New York City. That's the Arthur one, isn't it? Yeah. And sailing. But yeah, check out sailing. It's lovely. Tell me about the, uh, what was it like renewing your vows? Well, it was a surprise for my wife. I uh, hid, a, hid a, 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 another engagement ring because she'd lost hers in the sand. The kids were kind of digging the sand and they came across this ring. I was like, what's this? And then uh, my wife was like, why is that? We better give it back. And I said, no, no, it's yours. And uh, so then later on that day, we renewed our vows on the beach. We got a priest in and then we had this guy who knew a lot of songs from the 80s which is when we got married and uh, played sailing plus some Phil Collins groovy kind of love. And it was just a really lovely kind of place to do that, to renew our vows. Oh, really beautiful moment mm. and also really beautiful evocative music. Absolutely. If you want to check out a great hotel in Miami, sort of South Beach, it's the Aquilina Hotel. Okay, That's always. That's one of our favourite hotels in the world. Always need a, uh, a great a great hotel recommendation. Thank you so much for coming on the Thank you indeed. podcast. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Warwick, and thank you for joining us on the Big Travel Podcast. We're back every two weeks, I promise, with new episodes. So make sure you like and subscribe on whatever podcast app you're using so they can just pop into your hand. Thank you. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip <laughs> off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.